0: Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 9. The Gospel of John chapter 9. We're going to dive right in uh, to this passage. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, there's one located in the back of the pew in front of you. And if you would like to have your own copy, then feel free to take that this morning uh, as our guest or as a gift from us to you. So you can have that copy for you to read and study on your own. As we get to uh, this passage of Scripture, it's, uh, it's a little disheartening, to be honest with you, uh, to watch and see the reaction and things that are taking place. It's, uh, it's almost kind of sad as you read through the reactions of what's taking place. Last week, you may remember, uh, we talked about the, uh, the miracle of the man who had been born blind uh, from birth, how Jesus had healed him. Uh, we talked about the mechanics of that and how Jesus uh, gave him the gift of sight. And the focal passage from that, if you remember, was that God can be glorified in your life in spite of difficulties and hardships or tragedies uh, that you may have experienced or even maybe experiencing now. And the beauty of this is that God works in your life to meet the need and minister to you, uh, so that He brings He gets the glory in your life for the work that He does in your life. But it doesn't stop with just the work in you, because as people see the difference and as you share the work that Christ has done in your life, then they have the opportunity as well to respond uh, to Christ and to receive His work in their life, and so that that God is glorified in their life as well. So uh, God's glorified in how He works in your situation, but also as He shares that, uh, or as you share that with others, and God begins to work in their lives as well. So this week, we're going to start looking at the reactions uh, to this miracle. And really, as I said, it's kind of sad because you watch the reaction to this miracle, and it's one of these things where you kind of sit in stunned disbelief and go, really? Really? really that that that's that's how you respond that, that that's the reaction that you get to this miracle have you ever been in a situation like that where you watch something transpire and you see someone's reaction and you just kind of you're just dumbfounded i mean you don't know what to say you're not angry you're not upset you just you just look at it and go really I'll never forget, we were, had moved to Florida, and I grew up in Kentucky, you know, part of the south and southern hospitality and all that, and we moved to Florida, and I thought, well, Florida, you know, it's in the south, it's the same, you know, part of the region and all this sort of stuff. Florida's not the south, all right? It's very different down there, uh, and people tell us, they say, well, all the northerners moved down there and ruined the climate, you know, of being, being down in Florida, but the, we were there, I mean, we hadn't been there a week, and it was for like the first four or five days, we were in Walmart, and a customer, a, a gentleman in line, got upset over something that had taken place in history. Transaction. I really don't know what it was, but this guy went off on the cashier right here in Walmart. I mean, I'm talking yelling top of his lungs, waving, stomping his feet. I mean, just absolutely berating and belittling this poor little cashier that was there. And I remember standing watching going, <laughs> I, I just, I could not believe this man's response right here in public in Walmart. It was just one of those of, Wow, I I, I I didn't even know what to say. I looked at Shelley as we were leaving. I was like, "Honey, we're not in Kansas anymore." You know, it was, a, it was a whole different thing. And as we see this encounter, I kind of harken back to that and go. It's just gut-wrenching to watch the response to this man's miracle from those who should have been rejoicing and celebrating what had taken place. Uh, but if you remember, the man who was born blind at birth, uh, Jesus came, encountered him. Jesus made a little, he spit on the ground, took the dirt, made a little mud pie, wiped it on his eyes, told him to go wash in the pool of Salome, And when he did, the man was instantly miraculously and gloriously healed i mean he he hadn't been able to see anything now he had his his sight fully restored and i'm going to tell you the guy didn't go cool i can see I think I'm gonna go tell my family this is awesome I can't believe I just I just I was blind and now I can see no I mean the guy didn't just meander back home I'm sure he began to, to to shout and jump up and down I can see I'm healed I can see I was blind but now I can see and he ran as fast as he could back to tell his family members and his neighbors and his friends what had taken place in his life and we know that happened because in John chapter 9 verse 8 it says this The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And so this man, there was such a change in his life. It didn't just change his physical ability to be able to see. There was a change in his countenance. I mean, as a beggar, as a blind man, and we talked last week, people thought that he had sinned or maybe his parents had sinned. So he was kind of ostracized. He was outcast. He was on the lowest you know, rung of the, of the social ladder. People didn't want to be around him. And I'm sure that caused sort of a reclusive nature about him. And he, he felt beaten down and, and trodden on by people. I mean, there was just the, the, this sense of defeat, I'm sure, that followed him his whole life. But now after this miracle, I'm sure he was smiling and he was excited. He was jubilant and he, he was vibrant. He was telling people what had been done. There was such an incredible change in personality and temperament that people were going... That's not even the same man, is it? And some are going, well, yeah, well, no, it's not him. It just looks a whole lot like him. There's a case of mistaking identity here, you know, going on. What's going on? Because we knew this guy, we see this guy. They're so different. It can't possibly be the same one. But listen here at the end of uh, verse 9. I am the man, he said. Okay, maybe he didn't say it with that inflection. Maybe he was kind of saying, I am the man. He was trying to convince them, yes, it's me, I'm the same one that that couldn't see. But now I can see he wanted them to understand that he was the same person and that he had indeed changed, not just in, most importantly, in his physical sight, but also uh, in his countenance, in his demeanor. Verse 10. So they said to him, obviously, if if he convinced them that he was the person, they're going to say next, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus. Now, look at that, just a simple description. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So, I mean, everyone is blown away at this man's miracle. They can't believe he he was blind, but now he is able to see. They're excited for him, uh, and they begin to whisper that this man called Jesus, that's all he knew him about. Right now it was about the miracle, him being able to see, and this man called Jesus is the one who had brought this miracle into his life. And I told you last week, I said, file away the fact that the religious leaders are looking for an opportunity. They're looking for a way to discredit, to challenge, to, to uh, malign the name of Jesus in some way. So with that in mind, cue the ominous music as we begin to read verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees, da da the man who had formerly been blind. Now look at this, verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day, Da-da-da-dum, when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. So it was a very simple telling of his story. His testimony was very simple. He made mud, put it on my eyes. I went and washed in the pool. When I opened my eyes from having washed the mud off, I could see. That was it. I mean, it was his story. It was simple. It was straightforward. It was his personal testimony uh, that he was sharing over and over again. And because of this, look at what happens uh, among the Pharisees. He starts an argument, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man. Now it's interesting, they're still referencing and calling here the blind man, even though he's no longer the blind man. He's now the formerly blind man. He's now a seeing man, but they're still thinking of him and categorizing him as he was before in his old life. So they said again to to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, and note the progression here, uh, before he had referred to him as a man called Jesus, and now he said, he is a prophet. So this man had initially thought of Jesus as the man called Jesus who had performed this miracle for him. But upon hearing their conversation and having a little more time to reflect on what was taking place in his life, he now has moved from just the man called Jesus into he is a prophet. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But I want us to to dig in this morning to two particular areas from this text. And I'm going to take them in reverse order, uh, kind of in the text, but the the right progression uh, in our lives. The first is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? because that's what they're trying to, to, to get at. They're trying to discover here. Some are saying, well, he, he's, he's a man from God. He may be the Messiah. He's someone special. And others are saying, no, he, he's not because he's breaking laws. He's doing ungodly things, so he can't be one who is from God. And so their discussion reminds us that people have very differing views about who Jesus is. Now, to be fair, uh, as we get to this point, the Pharisees investigating miracles and miraculous claims was part of their work as religious leaders. It was their duty, it was their responsibility to talk to this man, to find out and get some details and some specifics about his miracle. And here's why. There were laws that were written that when a person was healed, uh, when they experienced a miracle, there were things that they needed to do as a result of that healing. Uh, Certain offerings that they would give for, for cleanliness or uncleanliness that happened before, Thanksgiving offerings, to thank God for what had taken place. So they were to investigate, verify that the true miracle had occurred, that it was from God, and then they would share, the religious leaders would share that with people and then follow up to make sure that the person who had experienced the miracle followed the instructions that were written in the law. And this was important because a lot of people would make claims about miraculous things, and they would do so uh, in order to gain uh, popularity, in order to gain uh, status and power uh, for themselves And so the Pharisees were to investigate to make sure someone wasn't deceiving people or that a quote unquote miracle hadn't been fabricated. And so it was a very important task for them to do. And in addition to persons making the claim for power and influence, uh, other people would try demonic and ungodly ways to secure a a miracle. And so idolatry was forbidden. So if a person claimed, hey, Baal healed me or, or Asherah healed me or the goddess Diana gave this miracle in my life, it could lead people to follow In idolatry to this false god, and so the Pharisees were there uh, and the religious leaders to make sure that people weren't being led into into following in idolatry and worshiping false gods because of these miracles. But here is the thing: they investigated, they heard how Jesus had healed the man. But then they began to divide because of Jesus' actions. One camp claimed that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath, and they said the law that Jesus was breaking, now get this, was kneading, K N E A D I, like making bread, because on the Sabbath, work was forbidden, and and making food was part of that work. And so if you kneaded bread together to be able to bake it and to eat it, that was considered work on the Sabbath. And so the the interpretation and, and the rules of the law to clarify not working on the Sabbath, Included, not needing to make bread on that day so here's what Jesus did that they considered the same work as kneading. he spit on the ground and he took that little spit with some dirt and he rubbed it together maybe he did it twice once for each eye and then he rubbed it on the blind man's eyes and told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam that was what they considered work that little bit of kneading uh, to put on the man's eyes that, that's one school of thought The others thought that the work that Jesus had done on the Sabbath was actually healing this man who had been born blind. Because the laws that had been written and the interpretations and clarifications that were there said this. The only medical treatment you could give on the Sabbath was treatment to sustain life. If there was a life-threatening injury of some kind, you could provide medical treatment to that level. But if a person had a non-life-threatening injury, you couldn't heal them. You couldn't offer treatment on the Sabbath. So blindness fell into the non-life-threatening category in their mind. Well, this guy was blind, but he was living... I mean, he was fine. He was making it okay. Why couldn't you wait till the next day, you know, to be able to heal him? So that was the argument that was here. I mean, it's like your kid, if, you, if your child were to break their arm on the Sabbath, you wouldn't be able to set that arm until after the Sabbath was over. I mean, so this is the, the minutia, the detail to which they're going. And this is the claim that they're making that Jesus broke the Sabbath. But now remember that these are all man's interpretations and these are all man's additions to the law because Jesus didn't violate The Sabbath law that God had given, nor the intent of the law, but he did violate their interpretations of it. That's an important thing to note, their interpretations of it. So you got that side saying he broke the Sabbath, and then others in the same group of Pharisees said, but wait a second. We know that God doesn't bless sinners, and God doesn't give sinners great powers because sinners could lead people astray. Remember the whole miracle thing So Jesus is healing this man in in, in an incredible, supernatural way. There must be something special about him to have this anointing, this blessing of God upon his life. We may not totally understand it, but it seems to be that he's a very special, a unique individual. Maybe we ought to give him some latitude, see what else is going on here. So they were divided, and they couldn't agree. You know, we still project a lot of our thoughts and our ideas and our perspectives and perceptions uh, upon Jesus, do we not? I mean, they were expecting Jesus to act and behave a certain way. And when he didn't act and behave that way, he got a very difficult reaction from the religious leaders. And we still today, we have pictures, we have ideas, we have concepts of how we relate to God and how Jesus should relate with us. Now I'm gonna share a couple of these pictures or these ideas with you and probably no one here, no one in the world as a believer would say that's how they think of God or that's how they think of Jesus, but practically and functionally how we live our lives, I think there's some truth in these pictures, these images, these ways that we expect God to relate to us in our walk with him. One way that I think people see and they relate to God is that God is a sort of a personal assistant for us. Another picture idea that comes with this is that of Santa or of a genie. You know what this is? Where where God does what you need him to do. When you you give him lists, you give him tasks, he takes care of that. He does what you need to do in order to make you happy and fulfilled and content in life. And it's a good thing that God is all powerful because sometimes you need some pretty big things from him. And so he needs to exercise that power in order to make you feel happy and content and peaceful uh, in life. Uh, we may tell them, you know God, I don't like being alone. So find me a boyfriend, find me a girlfriend. I want to get married. You know, God, I'm having a really, really bad week, so can you provide a little extra income so I can have some me time this weekend, you know, go and, and just enjoy myself and just let my hair down a little bit. So I needed, you know, a few extra dollars to do that or a few extra dollars to, to, to buy something that, that's going to bring me, you know, this happiness that I'm seeking for. So we see God sometimes as a personal assistant to help us out when we're in need or do what we want him to do so that we can be happy, we can be content, we can be fulfilled. Secondly, I think a lot of people see God as a personal physician, if you will. So where they spend most of their time and their efforts focusing on aches and pains and praying that God would heal those aches and pains as a personal physician for them. We're saying, hey, you know what? We'll pray for these other people as well. We wanna do that so that God will work in their life. Now, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't pray for people's physical needs. I think we should do that. Uh, We need to regularly lift those things up because God hears and responds to those prayers. But what I am saying is that God is so much more than just a source of medical treatment for our ailments. I heard a pastor one time say uh, that he's seen believers who pray more to keep saved saints out of heaven than they do praying for lost sinners to be able to go to heaven. I thought, man, there's a great insight right there. Think about that. Sometimes we spend more time praying that God will keep saved saints out of heaven by physical healing and rescuing them and bringing strength and recovery than we do for lost sinners to be able to go to heaven. And so uh, we find that balance there because remember this, Jesus didn't come for a physical healing ministry. Now, he did physically heal a lot of people, but that wasn't his chief goal, his chief aim, or his chief mission. It was what? It was to provide spiritual life, to provide a way, access to God through a relationship with himself. You know, another picture of God, a way that we kind of encounter him sometimes, or that people respond in their walk with him, is that of a psychiatrist, You know, God is the God who will let you vent and he'll express yourself and he listens and he offers encouragement and a piece of insight here from the Bible, maybe through prayer. Uh, He'll bring somebody to, to coach you through your problems so that you can be psychologically and emotionally stable and healthy. And the great thing about this psychiatrist picture of God is that he is loving and he's gracious and he's kind. And when you 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 talk about your sin, he's like, oh, it's no big deal. And when you justify why you sinned, well, I did it because of this. And well, he did this to me or she did that to me. And so therefore I did this. He's like, oh, that's okay. I understand it's fine. And he's okay with us justifying and rationalizing our sin. And the greatest thing about this psychiatrist picture of God is this, that when he offers counsel, when he gives us direction or insight, we can decide whether or not we wanna take it and follow that treatment plan. Ah, uh, that's a big commitment. That's that's all. That's a big ask for me to do and to give this up and to do that. I don't, God, I don't think I'm going to do that this week. Maybe try me next week when we come back in and have our next session, see if there's another idea you have in that way so we can take it or leave it when we kind of come to the psychiatrist God. I mentioned this one last week, uh, that of a police officer, but in that same vein, maybe like a prosecutor, you know, we see God. He's always hiding behind a bush or around the next corner. He's watching. He's waiting to, to catch us in something and to bring us in and, you know, put us on the witness stand and get in our face and try and, you know, Convince us of what we did wrong and, and point out the errors of our way so we have this guilt and this shame that we carry around. Uh, another view of God is that uh, some people, they actually they like and they view God kind of as a drill sergeant. Basically, he's barking orders. He's giving commands and demands. You don't have to know what, you, what he's asking you to do. You don't have to like what he's asking you to do. All you need to know is what it is you're supposed to do, and then you go and you do it and you put it into practice. You know, No questions asked. God is in control, and he'll tell you what to do. And so you, know, you just follow, follow the orders, and you'll be fine. He'll take care of everything, and he'll work it all out. And then the final is a classic one here, this picture of God as an insurance agent. And you know about this, right? You know, the the fire insurance against hell. Well, I'll, you know, give my life to Jesus. That way I'll go to heaven when I die. But I'm going to live for myself, you know, here on earth. And then this kind of idea with the insurance stuff is if you need a little extra coverage, you know, you got a little, you know, need in your life, you need a miracle, you need, you know, whatever other kind of need you go. And you say, well, you know, I'll do this. And we kind of barter a little bit. A few extra minutes in prayer, extra attendance in church this week. You know, maybe I'll serve a little bit in this way. So we kind of bargain. And whatever coverage you want determines how much you give in service back to God for his way and for his kingdom now here's the thing about these pictures I don't think anyone lives their lives totally and completely according to these ideas and these concepts of God but the temptation is for us to begin to trend in some ways in some areas We can begin to follow some of these patterns and some of these habits in our lives and functionally or practically treat God in these ways and have these expectations of him. And the problem with that is what we see in the Pharisees. If we don't recognize Jesus as he is, who he is, and come to him on his terms, our heart can grow callous. Our heart can grow cold and we can refuse to step out in obedience, in radical obedience that Jesus calls us to in order to serve him. And lest we sit here and think, well, that would never, we, we, it'll, we would never get to that point. Think about John chapter nine. Here are the religious leaders who've investigated a miracle to see that Jesus healed the man miraculously and gloriously. And we'll look the next couple of weeks and see that it, that it only gets worse from here. So is a very kind of a disheartening passage uh, because their, their hard-heartedness only gets worse in the upcoming verses as they continue to speak to this man and even his family about his miracle. But here's the thing. They see this man in front of them gloriously, miraculously, totally healed, and they don't wanna accept it. They refuse to believe and receive Christ. Why? Because he didn't act and behave and do things on their terms. He didn't do it the way they thought he should do it, and so they rejected him. Do you know this man in John chapter nine, is the first person known to have been put out of the synagogue he was excommunicated i don't know if you are familiar with the idea of excommunication in jewish culture but they were a very social culture and society their family uh... their business relationships much of it centered around the temple as they gathered together for worship it wasn't just worship it was a celebration it was time together of interaction and, and fellowship with other people and when you were excommunicated when you were put out and set apart from the synagogue People were forbidden to interact with you. When they would see you on the streets, they couldn't speak to you. Your family members no longer invited you over for dinner, for meals, for wedding celebrations, for funerals, for anything. You were cut off. You were ostracized. People were forbidden. If you were a business owner or had a business, they could not come and transact business and use your services and pay you any money. You were cut off. That's what it meant to be excommunicated and cut off from the synagogue in this day and time. And this is the first known person to have been put out of the synagogue, excommunicated, because he professed his faith and his belief in Jesus Christ. And why did he profess that faith? Because he had been miraculously healed. And they wouldn't accept that miracle I mean, we watch these men and we go, really? Really? This is your response? A walking, talking miracle in front of you and you refuse to accept the one who performed the miracle. It's stunning, but it is what a heart that refuses to accept Christ as he is on his terms, it's what a hard heart will do. And Jesus calls us to surrender Ourselves. Everything about us fully and completely to him. And everything about us changes when we surrender ourselves to him as he is and then we grow in our spiritual lives to more fully understand who he is. I told you two things I wanted to point out. One is is who is Jesus? To to recognize and understand who he is, what he came to do and receive him on his terms. The second is that we are to grow in our understanding and our knowledge and our relationship with Christ. Remember the man called him first, the man called Jesus. But then he called him, when he was talking with the Pharisees, a prophet. A prophet was was someone who was sent from God to deliver a message. So a prophet came and said, here's what the Lord says. And so the man now recognizes that God had done this in order to send a message. He didn't really know what the message was, but there was a message that Jesus came to deliver. And prophets would oftentimes do signs and wonders to get people's attention. They'd go, wow, look at what happened here. And then they would come and say, okay, we see the miracle." Now, tell us the message. And so this man knows that Jesus came and he performed the sign, this wonder, and he's kind of, you know, waiting to say, okay, what is the message? What is it that this Jesus uh, wants to say to us as a nation or to me individually? And later he'll encounter Christ and he'll hear that message. But the question for us is are we receiving Christ on his terms? Are we responding in obedience to his will, his desire, his plan for our lives? Or are we allowing our expectations? our thoughts, our preferences, our ideas of what should happen to hold us back and keep us from being fully devoted and following after Christ. Jesus' model in his ministry was what? It was to do God's will, not his own. But on his way to the cross of Calvary, Jesus prayed what? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Are we allowing our pictures, our expectations our desires of of Christ to keep us back from fully experiencing what he wants us to experience. And here's the thing, as we grow in our walk with Christ, our faith grows and God is able to do even greater and greater things in our lives. This man shared his story. He told his friends and family members what God had done in, in his life. And how many times did he repeat this story Hey, what what happened? Tell tell me, how did you get your sight back? When when was this? And what what did he say again? You went where? Over and over again, he's sharing his story. It was a powerful story, but it was his story. And as we think about our walk with Christ, I want to encourage you to share your story as well. Because do you realize that your story is no less miraculous than this man's story? That you whom the Bible says were separated from God because of your sin, have been brought into God's family, have become a very child of God through Jesus Christ. See, this man's story is a parallel of our journey. And as we share with others what God has done in our lives, just as this man did... We see the response to people, and God begins to work, and our faith grows, and our dependence upon Christ grows even more and more, and we get more excited about sharing, and we see God do greater things, and more and more people want to hear because they see the difference that's in our lives. It's a cycle that can continue as we grow in our relationship and our walk and our understanding with God. But here's how your story parallels the man who was born blind from birth. If you've given your life to Christ, this is a miracle that has taken place in your life. And if you've never given your life to Christ, then listen closely because this is the miracle that God wants to do in your life. We're all sinners, the Bible says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we are blinded by our sin. Our sin doesn't allow us to see and understand right from wrong because Satan wants to keep us in our sin. We're blinded by our sin. And we're lost sinners with no capacity to recognize our Savior or to find him on our own. Do you realize this blind man would not have received his sight had Jesus not came and sought him out? And in John six forty four, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we're blind, we're lost in our sin until God through the Holy Spirit finds us and speaks to our heart and tells us what we must do in order to have spiritual sight, to receive the, cru- the light of Jesus Christ into our lives. And God does that. He comes in the form of the Holy Spirit and begins to move and work in our hearts and draw us to himself. And he has to do that work of regeneration because the Bible says that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And when we're dead, there's no life. There's no finding our own way. We are dead, spiritually dead. But the Holy Spirit begins this work of drawing us to Christ. And Jesus came to this man. He met him in his blindness and he gave him instructions as to what he should do. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, God gives us instruction as well. He says if we want to uh, become a child of God, if we want to be alive in Jesus Christ, we are to admit our sins. Confess that we have sinned, that we've broken God's law. We've defied God's word. We admit to that sin, and we repent. We turn away from it, and we turn back to God. And the Bible says that we must believe that Jesus Christ died in our place. See, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. You know what a wage is, right? Many of you have jobs. You work your job, and at the end of working that job, at the end of the week, you expect a what? A paycheck, that is your wage, okay, that's what you get for the work and the effort that you put in. The Bible says that what we deserve, the payment that we should get because of our sin is death. That's a physical death, first of all, but, all, but secondly and most importantly, it is a spiritual death to be eternally separated from God as punishment for our sins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So we believe that Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we believe that Jesus died in our place as our substitute to take upon him the penalty for our sins. So we admit to our sin. We believe that Jesus died for us in our place. And then finally, we ask, we invite Christ into our lives. ask, we invite Christ into our lives. Christ into our lives. Christ into our lives. Christ into our lives. To guide Christ into our lives. Invite Christ into our lives. Invite Christ into our lives. To give him into our lives. Give him control of our lives. And as he comes in in the form of the Holy Spirit, we're forgiven of our sins. We're given the gift of eternal life, and the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within us. God himself, in the form of the Holy Spirit, lives lives and dwells within us. God himself, in the form of the Holy Spirit, lives and dwells within us to guide us and direct us and lead us into his good, pleasing, and perfect will, as the Bible describes it. And so there are two things, good Pleasing and perfect will as the Bible describes it. And so they're two pleasing and perfect will as the Bible describes it. And so they're two as the Bible describes it. And so they're two perfect will as the Bible describes it. And so they're too will as the Bible describes it. And so they're two as the Bible describes it. And so they're two perfect will as the Bible describes it. And so they're two in perfect will as the Bible describes it. And so they're two in perfect will as the Bible describes it. And so they're two perfect will blind, but now he is a was formerly the blind man. What? He's not the blind man. After his encounter with Christ, he's formerly he's the man who was formerly blind, but now we even this work uh, of drawing us to Christ. And Jesus came to this man, he met him in his blindness, and he gave him instructions as to what he should do. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, God gives us instruction as well. He says if we want to uh, become a child of God, if we want to be alive in Jesus Christ, we are to admit our sins. Confess that we have sinned, that we've broken God's law, we've defied God's word. We admit to that sin and we repent, we turn away from it. We turn back to God. And the Bible says that we must believe that Jesus Christ died in our place. See, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. You know what a wage is, right? Many of you have jobs. You work your job. And at the end of working that job, at the end of the week, you expect a what? A paycheck. That is your wage. Okay, that's what you get for the work and the effort that you put in. The Bible says that what we deserve, the payment that we should get because of our sin is death. That's a physical death, first of all but, all, but secondly and most importantly, it is a spiritual death to be eternally separated from God as punishment for our sins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So we believe that Jesus died in our place as our substitute to take upon him the penalty for our sins. So we admit to our sin. We believe that Jesus died for us in our place. And then finally, we ask, we invite Christ into our lives to give him control of our lives. And as he comes in in the form of the Holy Spirit, we're forgiven of our sins. We're given the gift of eternal life. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within us. God himself, in the form of the Holy Spirit, lives and dwells within us to guide us and direct us and lead us into his good, pleasing, and perfect will, as the Bible describes it. And so there are two ways of relating to Jesus Christ when it comes to salvation. One is for a Savior to be saved from our sins, but the other is to make him Lord of our life to give him control and authority and dominion over who we are and what we do and as we begin that journey of faith with him with Jesus in control we experience him in an ever-growing capacity and in new and fresh ways just as the man in John 9 did this man's faith grows in this chapter he went from talking about Jesus the man called Jesus to a prophet, he's going to later encounter Jesus and have the opportunity to profess his faith and his belief in Christ and and have not just physical sight but spiritual sight to see the light of Christ and to receive him Uh, and he finds Jesus sufficient at every step in his journey. And you know what, you will find the same thing, that Jesus Christ is sufficient for you in every step of your journey through life. You know, I referenced this last week uh, and and I'm working on myself, not calling this guy in, in John chapter nine, the blind man, because you know what, he's not the blind man. After his encounter with Christ, he's formerly, he was the man who was formerly blind, but now he is a seeing man. And I mentioned this last week and we're gonna continue to dig into it in the next couple of weeks. But I don't know what your past may have held What names rattle around in your mind or what names people may call you based upon your past? But I said last week, your past doesn't define your present in Jesus Christ, nor does it define your future in Jesus Christ.